good morning and take your Bibles. Join me in John chapter 12, if you would please. John chapter 12. And I'd like to begin reading in verse 23 of John 12. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it thundered. Others were saying an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ is to remain forever. How can you say The Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become the sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away, and he hid himself from them. Father in heaven, it's our hope that our worship in song, our worship in prayer, our worship in fellowship together in Christian love will now be extended into this time when we look to your word and we hear the voice of our God speak to us. And I pray that you will use me in that, help me to be clear and appropriate and truthful with my words, but I pray that your spirit might open the ears of every one of us to hear and receive what your spirit would teach us for the church this morning, that we will be sanctified and challenged in our walk of faith for any unbelievers here this morning, that you, God, by your power and your grace, you might open up the heart to receive Christ as Savior, to know him as the Lord and the Redeemer. And in all of these things, Father, that your church will be glorified, you will be glorified, And Father, your Son will be magnified in our praises, in our worship together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Our study of John 12 ended last week with the Lord Jesus describing the fruit that would be born out of his sacrifice as he, like a seed, would be placed into the ground and die. And these ones, these these ones that become his fruit, born out of that sacrifice, are ones that are to put away the old life, and to immerse themselves in new life, life eternal. These are the ones that are going to follow in the footsteps of the Savior in order to serve Him. God will honor these ones, and Christ will never leave or forsake. He will never abandon His flock. These are the words that precede where we're going to go this morning. And it's important that we remember those words that Christ taught in verse 23 down through verse 26, because it sets the context for where we're going to go this morning in our studies. I would like you to turn for just a moment in first to first Peter chapter two, first Peter chapter two, and listen to the words of the apostle Peter as he spoke of the sacrifice that Christ would make on the cross and what that means to us. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he offered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. 
For you were once continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. There is something in what Jesus Christ did on the cross that you and I as believers are to emulate. We just read in John 12 the words of Christ that says a true disciple of Christ will serve him and we will serve him by walking in his footsteps. Now we look at the cross. And according to the word, we're supposed to emulate something about Christ as he bore our sins on that cross. We can't die for the sins of any, to be sure. But the suffering of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, the the bringing of sinners to a place where they live in righteousness before God, these are things that Jesus Christ teaches us in his work on Calvary. So as we move forward in our text This morning, we not only want to see Jesus and how important that is, we must see Christ, but we not only want to see him for who he is, but we want to see the fruit that is born out in us through his death. And I speak here of finding our example in the Son of God, applying this passage to our lives so that we may be fruitful servants who are indeed walking in the footsteps of the Savior. This is the context that has already been laid out for us in John 12, as we now turn to verse 27 and continue in what Christ was teaching. The focus of attention here is going to be the cross, to be sure. But we're going to begin looking at the grief of the cross and the glory of the cross. And this is where we begin, verse 27 through verse 29. Here we see the weight of trouble that was bearing down on the soul of Jesus Christ as he's contemplating the atoning sacrifice that he's going to make in just a few days' time. We observe that Jesus is not only talking here to Andrew and Philip, but the crowd is gathered around. Verse 37 adds that many in this crowd were not believing in him, which fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy that men came with hardened hearts. And as we press further into the chapter, verse 42 suggests that some of the Jewish rulers began to believe in them, but they favored the praises of men over God. So they only believed to a certain extent, but they're not truly believers to salvation. Faith was not all that genuine because they feared men more than they feared God, which means they were not of the sort that Jesus spoke of in verse 25 and verse 26. These so-called believers still love the things of this life. That life of self-denial was not there. Verse 29, verse 34, these are verses that we're going to touch on this morning, and they express confusion in people. Unbelief is a refusal to discern the truth. It's even an inability to embrace truth. And when that happens, there is confusion. We've seen that throughout the study in John. We're seeing it right here again in chapter 12. Many of us probably noticed in the news just this week that one of the leading toy makers that is making that Mr. Potato Head is now redesigning, reconfiguring that little toy for children. We'll still have Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, but it's now going to be packaged in a more contextualized flavor that meets the demands of our community now so that It will just be potato head. And the children will be encouraged to take Mr. and Mrs. and cross-dress them because it's appropriate to have a transgender potato today. So Mr. Potato Head can dress up like Mrs. Potato Head. There's not only confusion in adult parents, but now we're going to teach that confusion to our children. And that's what happened when there is an inability to embrace the truth of God. And we're seeing it in many sectors of our society. Here we're witnessing when Jesus is speaking of the very glory, the truth of the gospel that would rescue men's souls from that kind of unbelief and confusion. We're going to begin this morning with the cross bringing grief to the Savior from verse 27. And as we look at those words of Jesus in verse 27, Jesus is perhaps thinking on that grain of wheat that is being placed in the ground in death. And he's contemplating, that's me. That's where I'm going to be in just a few days' time. 
He considers what that will mean for him. And this thought begins to bear down on his soul. Verse 27, 28, we hear the heart of Jesus speak of the hour that he's about to walk into. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It is rather an unusual thing for us to read that the heart of God was troubled. Knowing the full gospel story as we do, we may at least understand in part what Jesus was feeling here. But Jesus is the one who told his disciples in chapter 14 of John, do not let your hearts be what? Troubled. Jesus had been having a conversation with his disciples that he was about to experience death. And there was a dark atmosphere that was growing in the disciples' heart. And Jesus extends that promise to them. Don't be troubled in your heart. You believe in God, believe also in me. But here, prior to that, the heart of Christ is troubled. We go back in his gospel ministry in Galilee, and you remember the scene where the, boat, the disciples were in a boat out on the sea, and the storm raged. And the disciples feared for their life. And Jesus is sleeping in the boat, and they wake him up. Jesus, don't you care what's going on here? And you remember the words of Jesus. Why are you fearful? I'm with you. The Son of God is with you. Yet here in John 12, the Son of God is troubled in spirit about his own death and suffering. And I think in some respects, that contrast in itself between John 12, John 14, or the troubled disciples on the stormy sea, that's a picture of the cross. Jesus tells us we have no need to fear and be troubled because he's saying, I will experience the trouble for you. I will feel that grief for you. So in regard to salvation and eternity, the one thing the gospel offers is you don't need to be troubled in your heart because the Savior was troubled for you. He experienced that grief. Now, it's first important to understand what Jesus meant when he said, My soul has become troubled. What's he worried about? What is the anxiousness on his heart? And we would affirm together, I'm sure, it's not because of the physical suffering that he's about to endure, as difficult as that was, as as terrible as that experience would have been for any human being. Jesus was not grieving about the physical suffering that he was about to experience. And Jesus even uses here in the verbal tense a continual suffering. This has been going on, and it's building to intensity here. And strangely enough, throughout the ministry years of Jesus, he never seemed to be troubled about the shame that mankind brought upon him. Even though he is worthy of all honor and praise, man, we don't see him walking around being distraught or broken over the shame that unbelievers express toward him. And in addition, it is pointed out by a number of authors and scholars that there are many believers and unbelievers alike who have died courageously or at peace with death. Not all, but even unbelievers at times have faced death in peace and acceptance in the finality of life. And certainly many Christians have faced horrible and painful deaths on account of their testimony for the gospel. Jesus is not the only one that suffered greatly at the end of life. So the question for us to consider why this death is so unique that God's son would face his own death with such deep anguish and grief upon his soul. And at this point, we must see Jesus. We've got to see what's going on here. The weight of what Jesus was about to accomplish goes well beyond the threat of physical pain or public shame. The grief that was building within the soul of the Savior is also communicated in the Garden of Gethsemane. I reference Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus kneeling in the garden and crying out to the Father. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And Luke continues to describe that scene, writing Jesus being in agony, was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. But it's not until we see Jesus hanging on the cross in those final moments that we understand what was so troubling to his soul when Jesus cries out 
And you know this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The dread that had come over the soul of Jesus was the reality that when he would be nailed to the cross, he, the perfect Holy One, would become defiled as every sin, every wicked deed and thought and word of every one of his people were placed on him. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3 and verse 13 says that Christ became a curse for you. Those are strong words. Those are traumatizing words. And they're meant to paint a theological picture for us that the reality of Christ's sacrifice is that he, the perfect, holy, righteous one, the one without sin or defilement, he would on the cross become thoroughly defiled with our sin. And there on the cross, Jesus was commissioned by God not only to take those sins upon himself and become that defiled one, that cursed one, but God himself would turn his wrath against his own son. And you cannot understand the trauma of that unless we at least get a glimpse of the perfect love relationship between God the Father and God the Son broken there on the cross such that the father could no longer even look at his son. So vile was he. The father turns his face away. The foul taste of our sin would not end there, but rather the one who is the giver of life, the creator of life, the one that breathed life into the nostrils of creation must himself die, surrendering his life to make full payment for our sin. Now, I want you to stop and think about yourself for a moment here. We live with our sin, and very often we are quite comfortable tolerating our sinfulness. But Jesus had never, ever from eternity past known one single defilement. And the thought of it was so distasteful that his soul became heavy with grief. And you can see here why English words or even Greek words are not going to describe what's going on in the heart of the Savior at this moment. His soul is deeply agitated by the thought that his father would look upon him with disgust and turn away. He was burdened in his spirit with the reality that he would feel the full weight of God's judgment, a judgment he did not deserve. And therefore, it is an understatement to read that the soul of Jesus was troubled if any one of us would respond by saying, I know how he felt. I've had those dark moments too. I've known discouragement as well. There is nothing that you and I have to compare with the grief that troubled the heart of Jesus in preparing for that moment. God himself was traumatized by the cross. And this brings us to the beauty of the contrast in that grief. The cross also brought glory to God in such a way that is understandable. It doesn't make sense to us that such grief against God, such trauma against God, would indeed bring God glory. But that's exactly what Christ expresses here. In his grief, he takes that contrast to the glory of his suffering that would bring to his father. He expresses this in a form of a question. Shall I ask my father, get me out of this mess? Take me from this dreadful hour and his immediate answer. No, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is looking at the terrible cost of making sinners righteous. He knows that he alone can remedy the sin crisis. But the cost is so distasteful to him that he wishes he didn't have to endure that trial. He wishes for another way as he prays in the garden. And at the same time, Jesus knew that's the Father's will for him to accomplish. He came to this world for this moment. And he knew that he would bring his Father much glory in providing the only hope of salvation for God's people. So in devoted resignation to the Father's will, Father, glorify your name. And his Father immediately responds to that prayer. 
thundering voice from heaven. I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. God not only was thoroughly approving his son's life and ministry, but he's saying, I'm approving his death as well. I approve, I affirm my son. He will bring glory to my name on the cross as he did in life. He brought glory to my life in his ministry and preaching of the gospel and his miracles, his expressions of love. But my son will glorify my name in his death as well. Last week, we considered how the attributes of God, the perfections of God, are so visibly displayed in the atonement. We see his grace. We see the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the power of God to save, the power of God to raise up from death into life, the majesty of God to forgive the unworthy, the marvelous attributes and the beauty of God's perfections are visibly displayed in the atonement. And here, God affirms that reality. At both the baptism of Jesus and his transfiguration on the mountain, God affirmed his love for and his approval for Jesus Christ. God does so here again at the hour of his son's greatest sacrifice. John writes that the crowd that had gathered around at that moment, they hear the sound of God's voice. Some think it's peals of thunder. Others assume this was a voice of an angel speaking to Jesus, but it appears that none of them understood the words themselves that were affirming his son's petition. Now, we want to take again that view of Christ. And it is somewhat of a dark view, yet a view that gives Christ the ability to bring his father much glory, that contrast between grief and glory. And it is so important for us to apply that to our lives, as difficult as that may seem. Richard Baxter made this comment. He said, he is the best Christian who has the clearest knowledge of God in his attributes. He is the best Christian who has the clearest knowledge of God in his attributes. In other words, believers, we have to do more than read the word, memorize the word, and talk about the word. We actually have to live the word. We take the theology of who Christ is and we must apply it. We must become that better Christian that sanctified Christian. So before we move to our second half of this passage, let's take a moment and look at Christ and apply that knowledge of him for the revelation of God's glory. Several principles are found in this text showing us again what it means to walk as Christ walked and to serve him in honor before God our Father. Observe first, as we look at Jesus together, It glorified God that his son would serve sinners. It glorifies God that his son would serve sinners. The ultimate purpose of Jesus Christ coming to this world was to bring glory to God the Father. And what would he do in this world? I'm going to use Mark chapter 10. Because in this chapter, Mark is describing a squabble between the disciples who are all posturing for a better position in heaven. And Jesus watches this this argument that exploded among his twelve. And he stopped him and said, you know, the world acts like that. I don't want you to act like that. And then he chastised his men by saying, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. And I want you to get this in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and now watch for the cross, and to give his life a ransom for many. Why did Christ come? To bring glory to God. How would he do this? To serve sinners. To serve sinners. That would bring glory to his father. In John 12, we learn that it glorified God that he would do this. He came for the sake of condemned sinners to endure intense suffering to serve us by giving his life as a ransom payment for our souls. So here is the example. For any that wants to serve God and to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, we also glorify God when we do what? 
serve sinners. When we serve sinners, and by serving sinners, we mean serving them in a gospel way. It means preaching the gospel so that sinners might hear the truth and be saved by it. We serve believing sinners by working toward their salvation or their sanctification, we would say. We bring God's word into the lives of one another, teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness. We also serve sinners when we minister to human need and suffering, both within and without the church. It is wrong for us to ignore serving others. It is wrong to serve only those that we think deserve our best efforts. It is wrong for us to serve others for our own glory. Rather, we serve one another to bring glory to our Heavenly Father, even as the Savior did. We cannot save sinners as Jesus has done, but we can lead sinners to the Savior. We can serve other believers who struggle with sin, where we patiently bear one another's burdens and we bring the Word of God to bear upon sin. We serve one another by calling them to repentance. Why? Because it brings glory to God. We've served sinners by ministering to human suffering and need, even as just Jesus did. That too glorifies God. And this is how we follow the Savior who served us. We serve others for his glory. Second, again, looking at the Savior together. It deeply troubled the Savior to be exposed to my sin. It deeply burdened the heart and grieved the Savior to be exposed to my sin. And I'm using the personal pronoun in the first sense there, my sin. The weight of grief that Jesus experienced leading up to and while dying on the cross is clear evidence that our sin was highly distasteful to him. Not only was the defilement of my sin distasteful, but the displeasure of his father on account of my sin was wretched to Christ. So how do we follow in the footsteps of our Savior as faithful servants to him? Well, friends, we ought to pray that God would grant us that same revulsion to sin. Oh, that my heart might deeply be grieved at that which grieved the Savior. It burdened the heart of God's Son to bear my sins. It shouldn't burden my heart too. I think we need to pray. I think this is the point that convicted me the most in this study this week. We ought to pray that God would give us that holy displeasure for our own sin because we tend to minimize it. I'm not that bad a guy. I don't do a lot of really bad things. I'm not perfect. I get by. Perhaps if we got even a small taste of the grief that the Savior experienced, it would be a holy incentive to actually hate and reject the things that too often we love and that we wish to hold on to. The anguish on the soul of Jesus Christ in bearing our sin on the cross should teach us to hate every defilement that entices our hearts. When contemplating sin... When it comes knocking at our door, stop and think of the grief of the Savior. And third, as we look together at Christ, we see Christ. Jesus chose divine glory over self-interest. He chose to glorify God over self-interest. In his humanity, Jesus became troubled in contemplating what he must do on the cross. In his humanity then, he faced a decision that must be made. This is what we read in John 12. This is what you read about in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's making a decision. Pursue his own comforts. Satisfy his own anguish by retreating from the stress and the ugliness of the cross. Or do what glorifies the Father. Fulfill the will of God. And the clear lesson for us in following Jesus, walking in his footsteps and serving him, is the constant challenge for every true believer in this growth of sanctification. This is going to be our lifelong struggle, isn't it? Will it be my way or God's way? My will or his will? Will I choose my own glory or the glory of my Father in heaven? 
And this is why idolatry was so offensive to God. And it was so aggressively condemned throughout God's word, especially in the Old Testament. When God's people seek pleasures and pursuits over the value of God himself, those things become idols of worship that compromise the glory that we ought to be giving to the Lord. Idolatry is the choosing of self over God, the setting up of ourselves as idols to receive glory over glorifying the Lord. And as God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, God says, I'm not going to give my glory to another. So stop trying to take it from me. It must be the driving purpose of every one of us as believers. Resist seeking glory for self and live for the glory of God. Again, I recognize this is going to be a lifelong, sanctifying process for us. This is why we look to the Savior. We don't even come close to enduring what he endured. And yet he did so for the glory of God. This brings us to the second half of our study this morning, verse 30 to verse 34, where Jesus continues this discussion with this crowd that had gathered around. And in this second section of our study, Jesus proclaims to this this group of people what his suffering will accomplish, not just for the redeemed church, notice, but for the world of darkness as well. And if we glance down at verse 35, we can see that Jesus pictures in in his mind the contrast between light and dark. Jesus is represented by the light. Well, the darkness represents the world of unbelievers, a world that our text tells us is under the rulership of the devil himself. And it is the cross of Jesus Christ that exposes the contrast between those two realms. What the cross does is that it brings judgment upon the realm of darkness, and Jesus Christ, because he is the light of the world, brings justification to those who believe in his saving work on the cross. So the cross then becomes the great divide between those two realms. And as the crowd is confused about the thundering voice from heaven, Jesus responds by saying, that sound, it was for your sake. And that sounds a bit interesting because the voice from God was an answer to the prayer of Jesus himself. What shall I say? Shall I retreat from this hour? No, I came to earth for this purpose. Father, glorify your name. And the response then seems to be from God to his son. And yet Jesus is saying to these people, this isn't for me. This message was for you to hear. Now, many scholars point out in Hebrew understanding, verse 30 could read more like this. This voice has not come for my sake alone, but for your sake also. Well, no doubt the voice of God would have been an encouragement to the heart of a grieving son. It certainly could have been. But we might also know that if God had not spoken those words, Jesus would never have lost confidence in the good and perfect will of the Father. God does not need audible words to speak to his son. He could have encouraged the very heart of Jesus without those audible words. So, again... Who were those audible words for? It's for those that were listening and watching and hearing. And we're reminded again here, those standing by, they need their faith established on what Jesus is about to do, namely the disciples. And it brings us right back to verse 16. Remember there where John says the disciples didn't understand at the moment, but when Christ was glorified and walked out of the tomb, they would remember these things happened to Jesus. When he would rise from the grave on the third day, the glory of his atoning sacrifice would come into sharper focus. And Jesus is telling his true followers that the voice that affirmed the glory of the cross that they were about to witness was a glory that would be for the name of God himself. And that glory would come out of Christ's death. And when that day of glory came, the disciples would remember this moment that God himself from heaven affirmed the glorifying work of his son. Beginning in verse 30, we understand from the Lord's words 
The cross brings judgment. It brings judgment. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. Verse 31, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This seems at odds, does it not? With what Jesus taught back in John chapter 3, when he said, I came to save, I didn't come to judge. Jump ahead to verse 47 here in John chapter 12. He echoes the same thing. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to what? Judge the world, but to save the world. And if we let Jesus continue that thought, giving us a fuller understanding, we note what he says also in verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. Who is that one? The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. What word? It's the gospel word. We naturally think that the Savior has come into our world to bring salvation. And while the cross meant the death of God's Son, we see the cross, do we not, as a symbol of our eternal life and our hope, God's salvation. What Jesus adds in verse 31 does not deny that truth, but it brings the cross into sharper focus by saying it is the cross of Christ and the cross alone that brings salvation. And for any to reject that word, that gospel word, to reject his death as the only atonement for sin already stands in judgment before God because they've rejected the sacrifice of God's Son. And in this way, the word of the gospel condemns the unbeliever. The cross not only brings salvation, the cross brings condemnation. And in addition, Jesus said that as a result of his death, as a result of the cross, the ruler of this world is cast out. What is fascinating in that declaration is that it tells us that apparently Satan didn't really understand what was going on. What he knows now is not the same as what he knew then. Because when God became incarnate, Satan set about to destroy. And we learn in the Gospels, both in Luke and John, that Satan had entered into the heart of Judas, who was compelled to betray Jesus into the hands of those who killed him. And when Satan completed his mission, and there Jesus lay dead on the cross, they took him down and they buried him in a grave, Satan felt, I've completed my mission. I am triumphant. So apparently, Satan didn't clearly understand what Jesus came to this world to do. What Satan thought was a victory ended up bringing his rulership, his domain to an end. We know that Satan and his demonic realm still have influence in this world. But because of the cross, he is powerless to overthrow the kingdom of God. And God rescuing out of this world the redeemed, who will be the church of Jesus Christ. We recall from Matthew chapter 16 that Jesus, as he thought of the church, he said, this is something I am building, right? And even hell itself will not be able to stop the forward progress of the church that I am building. Satan can't stop it. He has no power, has no rulership over this thing that the cross has started. And this reinforces the words that Jesus says in the very next verse, in verse 32 of John 12. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This is what I will do. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was going to die. And this brings us to the next effect of the cross. The cross not only brings judgment, it brings justification. And it's in these words that we see the sharp contrast between the world's darkness that is separated by the cross of Christ, who is the light of the world. The lifting up of Jesus from the earth. We know references his being lifted up on a cross to die for the sins of his people. And Jesus is saying that when that happens, when that takes place, I will draw all men to myself. 
Now, this does not mean that every last human being in the world will be drawn by Christ into salvation because that's contrary to the message of the the word of God. But rather what Jesus means is that men and women from all the nations of the world will be drawn to him. And he means all men and women who have been given to him by the Father as John 6 has already clearly taught us. It is the Father must draw them to the Son. And it's the cross that will be that drawing call, that enticement. God will use the cross to bring to his son those whom he chooses to save. Paul put it in these words, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before the cross ever took place. God had chosen his redeemed ones. That we, the redeemed ones, would be holy and blameless before him. Those who are drawn to Christ are those chosen by God in Christ from before the foundation of the world. And it is the cross of God's Son that has made these chosen people, what? Holy and blameless. Blameless. That means Satan has nothing more to accuse us with. Nothing. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 12, his rule is over. The cross brought an end to that. One of our most well-known passages, especially in our wanted program, 1 John 1, 9. You can memorize, you know this one by heart, don't you? If we confess, he is faithful and what? Just. He's just to forgive and cleanse from all unrighteousness. Why is that just? Why is he not using the word grace there? Because it is a gracious act of God, right? It is just for God to do that. Why? Because his son bled out to pay for every one of those sins. It's done with. If that doesn't give you confidence in Christ, the cross fully paid the price. And therefore, Satan has no longer any rule over us. He has no accusation that'll stick. And that's why even though Satan accuses the brethren, it can go nowhere because there in heaven at the right hand of God the Father is our mediator, our advocate. And all he has to do is say, Monty belongs to me. My blood covered him. Yeah, he's a rotten guy sometimes. But those sins were covered. Do you realize we can't even right now as believers obey God in loving him with all our heart, soul, and mind. But aren't you thankful that the cross has forgiven me of that insufficient, inadequate love? I don't love God the way I ought to. But I'm forgiven for that too. So that when God looks at me, he sees holy and blameless. I couldn't earn that. But the blood of Christ did. The cross accomplished that. Do we understand now why Satan lost his rule? There's nothing he can do with the kingdom of God. He can't do anything with the church. Oh, yes, he can tempt us. He can lure us away for a moment. But sin has no more dominion over us. There's no more condemnation. And this is why I like the word justification. Because it's God declaring it's done. I have declared that one just, holy, blameless, Because of the cross of my son. Look at Colossians chapter 2. This is a favored passage. I often think of this text when we sing it as well with my soul. Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and circumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt. Consisting of decrees against us. Those are the laws of God that we have broken, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through Christ. Every charge against me was nailed to the cross of Christ. They're paid. 
It disarmed the rulers and authorities. They no longer have any claim against me. There's no accusation that Satan can make to any true believer that's going to dissuade God from saying, that's one of my holy ones, and they're blameless before me. I don't think of myself as terribly blameless right now. So it's reassuring to me that God looks at me that way because of the merits of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, it's what we are. We're flesh and blood. He himself, Christ, also partook of the same. He took a, partook of flesh and blood. He became one of us, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who submit to slavery all their lives. We've been set free. Satan has no longer a claim to us. He still has influence over our world of darkness. And again, he may lure us for a moment back into the path of sin. But true believers cannot be held by him. They cannot be drawn away from the one Savior who has drawn them to himself because of the cross. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Satan has no rule or authority to accuse the redeemed of God. Because Jesus is seated there by the right hand of the Father, declaring our justification. Now, sadly, the crowd that is listening to these words of Jesus do not receive his words in faith. They hear Jesus speaking of being lifted up. They hear him refer to himself as son of man. Back in verse 23, they heard it. And they correctly perceive that Jesus is claiming to be the promised Christ, the Messiah. But their limited understanding of the Old Testament cannot piece together a Messiah that's just going to come for a short time. You say you're going to be lifted up? Messiah is supposed to come forever. What kind of son of man are you talking about here? Again, confusion because of a refusal and inability to believe the truth of Jesus Christ. And I have to presume in this that they did not understand what John wrote in verse 33, that being lifted up was a reference to the cross. But even if they did, That kind of a dying Messiah just didn't make sense to them. What this gives to us is a picture of unbelief in the very act of God's Son that would not only bring glory to the name of God, but could bring eternal justification to their souls. You reject that, the cross then judges, and it judges for all eternity. Now, once again, as we come to the end of this second half of our study, it is necessary us to find application here. And in this case, I'd like us to think in terms of the Lord's words in verse 30, that the voice of God that thundered from heaven was meant to give assurance and certainty to the disciples for the glory that would come on Christ. And those disciples would witness that death of Christ, that cross, in just a couple of days. So these words are meant to give assurance God's voice of affirmation was to give that certainty. These three points I'd like to leave you with as we look again at the Savior. We can be certain of the coming day of judgment. We can be certain of the coming day of judgment. We have great assurance and hope that eternal life lies ahead for us. But this also is the hope of the gospel. Judgment comes. This world is already judged where the cross is rejected. This world troubles us. There is injustice here. There's confusion here. There there is a rejection of the truth. There is corruption. We feel the pain of living in this world. And as I noted last week, most all of us feel the burden of this life in some way. And most of us have experienced the ill treatment of others, even sometimes from others who claim to be believers. It is because of the cross that victory is already declared and the judgment of God is part of the glory of the cross. Because in that day, the final day of judgment, God will make everything right. And we look to that God with the hope and the knowledge. I'm going through hard things now, but God, when it is appropriate, when the time is right, he will make everything right. Second, we can be certain, we can be certain that we are free of eternal condemnation. We are free 
of eternal condemnation when we are in Christ by faith. Satan may stand accusing the brethren, as the scripture says, but Jesus is the perfect advocate for his people because he took the judgment of his people on himself. It's Hebrews 2 that tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren since he is the one who has made us clean and pure. So even though we sin in this life and it's important that we confess and repent, we know that eternally there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And third, we can be certain in our gospel witness. We can be certain in our gospel witness. You and I cannot draw all men to Jesus. We can't draw all men to Jesus. Jesus will do that. But knowing that he will, knowing that he does, ought to give us confidence in preaching the gospel. I don't know those people that God will draw to himself, but I do know that he does, and he will. And therefore, we can be bold in preaching the gospel of salvation. And of those we preach to, again, we cannot know who God will draw to his son, but we have confidence that God does know those ones, and he will do it. And because of the cross, Jesus draws all his people to himself, and you and I have been given the privilege to sound out that gospel call. Why do we invite people to come to faith in Christ? Because we know God will draw men to himself. We have confidence in God. It's what he said he would do. And he's called us to be those ones to call out the gospel, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We do so with confidence, knowing God will save. Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of the cross. We thank you for the heart of the Savior who, as we witnessed from the pages of Scripture this morning, was burdened and grieved to bear our sins, but out of love for you and out of love for his church, he bore them just the same. And this brings you much glory. Father, can we look at the Savior and we learn from him? Can you teach us to walk as he walked, to love as he loved, to forgive as he forgives, to minister the word, to minister the gospel, as he did. Help us, Father, to walk in his footsteps that we might faithfully serve your son and that we might honor your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.